This week on Waxing the Porpoise, G-Baby and the usual suspect Steve convene to talk about the active double murder trial of Southern solicitor Alex Murdaugh. Did Alex Murdaugh murder his wife and son in cold blood? Can the state prove that beyond a reasonable doubt? Those are very different questions that we'll explore in the midst of rumor, speculation, and conjecture. All things which do not equal hard evidence. Whether you're a casual observer, the true crime sleuth, or wine mom trying to catch a steady fade, join us as we try to differentiate between the media hype, the facts, and evidence presented at trial so far. I'm here! (laughs) I'm here! Let's wax this presumptively innocent porpoise. Welcome to Waxing the Porpoise. Uh, we're back again, episode 45 now. Tonight, we are actually going to discuss not a deep cut, but actually something that's very much in the public, Alex or Alec Murdoch or Murdaugh case, if you like, Alex Murdaugh. I fucking don't like that, man. The way it's back and forth on both names. Dude, I've heard a third pronunciation of his first and last name where it's either Alex, Alec, or Elick by the real Southern folks. And his last name is either Murdaugh, Murdoch, or Murdoch. So we should just rotate all of those names. It pisses me off. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know, I'm sure it, everyone's kind of got their eyes on that. So I thought it was like some just ho-hum case until I actually looked into it. And, and it's pretty intriguing shit, like all the different layers that are in this, this Southern stew we have yeah. gone. So... Uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So uh, it, this should be a good one because this is like right in your this is your wheelhouse, isn't it, Steve Dog? Yeah, it's um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's more than just like the onion that you peel the layers back. It's like a kitchen table full of different onions that yeah, each, <laughs> each one is full of its own crazy long story. So one's caramelized, one's a bloomin' fried. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get off to the races here, so uh, tonight you got myself, Jim G. Baby. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. <laughs> and of course, uh, we have the usual suspect, Steve. Oh, who the fuck are you? I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> How's it going, man? You've never done a desktop? Going yeah, good, after getting man. into all this stuff, I I, wa- I flash back to The Departed because it's been a long time. Yeah, I got there was a couple I had to include for that. Yeah, I haven't seen that one in forever. I should revisit that one. That is a good one. Just to like, it feels it it fills you up. You know, like it's like a it's a good like heavy meal. And yeah, you can put it aside. You know, for like eight years and come back and re-experience. Like it's one of those kind of like. Like I'm the same way Scorsese a lot. I mean, I like, you know, casino. Mm -hmm. It's like you watch it once you're good for like, you know, 10 years. I feel like it's just such an experience and you don't want to diminish it, but or good. It's not like a a happy Gilmore that you can just put on in the background. Yeah. Any any night of the week. Yeah. Oh, I just got heat on in the background. (laughs) Something light. Um, Okay. You got anything new, anything of note you've been got going on? past week or so 
No, I've just been I've been keeping a close eye on this trial because I had I had heard the the initial news events as they were happening because it was so wild. But then as the trial was getting closer, I, I really wasn't that interested in it because it, it seemed like just such a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. But as so I decided to just watch the opening statements by the state and the defense. And after that, I realized like, oh, this isn't quite as ironclad, stone cold lock as it first appeared to be. So then I just kept watching and it's just gotten more and more. It's it's boring as shit, but also really interesting at the same time, if you can if you can somehow reconcile that in your mind. But yeah, so I guess I guess before we get into it fully, I would just like to give yeah. fully. Uh, I would I would like to give a, a, a just a quick slight disclaimer because I, I've seen a lot of crazy opinions back and forth about this trial so far. Like one of my favorite things to do is just read like YouTube video comments. And to just see the insane vitriol <laughs> thrown back and forth by people who don't know each other, but they think they know everything about everything. So going into this case, whether no matter what you know about it or him or him as a person, uh, we do have to give every criminal defendant the presumption of innocence, right? So as, as we learn more facts and details about this story, if you can, if you can look through that, if you can look at those facts through the lens of you know, how, how does this benefit the defendant? You know, like if you're looking at it through, like if you're just sitting there watching a a tennis match and you're just looking at both sides equally, that that's not the way you should be looking at this. If you're a a juror, I guess, or, or just a, a spectator, you should be looking at it, looking for the defense's narrative to be true, because that's, that's the way the system is set up. You go in, the defendant gets the benefit of bit of benefit of the doubt because you're it's essentially their life on the line. So imagine, imagine uh, as we record this, the Super Bowl hasn't happened, but as you're listening, it already happened. It would be like if the Super Bowl between the Eagles and the Chiefs, all the referees were Eagles fans, right? So they want, they want the referees to be slanted in one direction because as it comes to this trial and most trials, uh, the state just has such a huge advantage. Like they have unlimited resources and time and they can, they can, you know, retry it as many times as they want if they get a, if they get a, um, like a hung jury, right? But if, if you're a defendant and you're being charged with murder, I, I would imagine that you would want to commit every resource, every dollar you have to being found not guilty, right? So if you get like a hung jury or a mistrial and you have to start over, there's a good possibility you're starting over with zero dollars and you could, you could be fucked, mm. right? So that puts you at, at an advantage. So that's why th- the system is set up the way it is to where, the defendant should be given the benefit of the benefit of the doubt because I think I don't know it was Jefferson or something said it's better for a hundred guilty people to go free for than one innocent person to be convicted. So uh, just wanted to get that out of the way because I know I mean this guy is clearly a huge piece of shit. But does that mean he killed his wife and kid? Maybe we'll go through it. Mm-hmm. And originally I was hoping this episode would would coincide with the state resting because it was originally scheduled to be three weeks. They are now going to blow by that um, for reasons that we'll get to in a little bit. So as we record this, the state hasn't rested yet, but we've got a pretty good idea of what their theory of the case is, and we can go through that. Um, one one last thing I wanted to put in here before we get into it, without getting too far into the weeds, are the different the different types of burdens of proof in these trials. So when you have to prove something, or the state has to prove something, there there are different levels, right? So if you think about it, like a meter that's zero to a hundred, 
how high up the meter does your proof have to be to get to whatever the the next step is or the verdict, whatever that is. So the lowest one is like a, a probable cause standard. And that's like, yeah, that, that's possible. If we believe everything the state says that this person did it. That's why I'm sure you've heard how easy it is to get a grand jury indictment. It's like getting, they could indict a ham sandwich. If you've ever heard that, it's because <laughs> you, you just need like a drop of evidence basically. And they'll, they'll send it to trial. Then the next, the next level of burden of proof is a preponderance standard, which is like 50% plus one. It's like, is this thing more likely Quorum. than not? And that's usually the, the standard in civil trials, you know, where it's like, who do we believe more? Even if it's this person, 50.1% and this person, 49.9, mm-hmm. we, we go with that person. Um, I'm sure most people are familiar with beyond a reasonable doubt. That's about as high as you can get. I've, I usually refer to it as like 95%. It's like 95 to 99 where there's just no rational person could come to a different conclusion if it's beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, mm-hmm. um, but above preponderance and below beyond a reasonable doubt is it's called clear and convincing. So you can think about that as like 75%. So you, you don't have to prove it to the same burden of beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's higher than that sort of 50.1%. It's like, it, this is more likely than not by a pretty good offering of proof. Okay. So because some of one of those in particular comes up later in this case, uh, and it's kind of interesting as far as a, a ruling. So just wanted to throw that out there in the beginning in case, in case anybody's not familiar, that's my cat. And <laughs> so then, yeah, if, if the, for those that's who crazy, I'd never even heard of that third term. What was that again? Clear, clear and convincing. convincing. So yeah, if, if you wanted to go huh. shortest to tallest, it's probable cause preponderance, clear and convincing and beyond a reasonable doubt. Wow. Um, so if, if there's no truth in it, <laughs> but it was close enough for government work. Yeah. God, I love that guy. <laughs> I, th- I think he's looking down and smiling on this trial because this would be the type of thing he would love. Um, yeah. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar, the, the Murdoch family or Murdoch or Murdoch family, they basically have run this corner of Southeast South Carolina going back over a hundred years, I, I, I believe. 1920 it's, through 2006. Yeah. So they've had several generations of, they call them solicitors, but as far as I understand, it's no different than just a district attorney. So they are the arm of the state and, you know, they've, they've prosecuted some pretty nasty dudes down there. I think there was a really famous one of this big motorcycle gang. I can't remember what it was called. I didn't write it down, but that was a big get for the family. And so Richard, the gentleman on trial for murder currently is uh, third or fourth generation. And he also was a solicitor briefly at the beginning of his career, but then he went into private practice at a personal injury firm, which mm-hmm. it's just a money printing factory and factory. Yeah. Yeah. So his family is so well known there. There's testimony at one point from this lawyer that we can talk about later that of all of the personal injury litigation going on in this part of the state, over half of it was this guy's law firm. So, the amount of money coming in is just unfathomable. Yeah. And yeah, it, it sort of it, it sort of explains later on why it took this financial house of cards so long to fall because there was so much money coming in that mm-hmm. the problem wasn't really recognized. So yeah, because some of these mo- these monies or the, these chunks that he like systematically embezzled 
are huge chunks. Yes. I was wondering that too. I was like, fuck, man, they must have just been raking in the dough for this to be like small potatoes and not like caught onto much earlier, you know? Yes. Anyway. And there is there is some serious financial fuckery going on. Which yeah. is an which the is the whole its own... shit with all the forge stuff. Yeah. Well that I mean, shit's we can get into it, but there's issues with other partners at his law firm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's issues with the bank he was using. So oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty nuts, and it's it's sort of revealing uh, this web of a lot of crazy shit that's going on below the surface. So uh, the Murdoch family is Alex, the dad, Maggie, the mom, and they have two sons. Buster's the older one, and then Paul is the younger one. So. Uh, in an attempt to not confuse the shit out of myself or or anybody listening, I kind of have this set up in a linear timeline of it. It's not just the murders. It this goes back years um, for potential motive for Alex and also potential motive for a retribution killing, which I think is I assume that's what the state or the uh, the defense is going to offer. Right. So, like we talked about before, as we go through these facts and speculative ideas. Think about it from the the perspective of the defendant, right? Like, does this lend itself more to Alex murdering his wife and son? Or could this possibly just be another potential aggrieved party who would want right. to take retribution against the family? So right. having having that said, uh, the, the first, I think, major relevant event in this timeline takes all back, sorry, takes place all the way back in July of 2015. That's when a young kid named Stephen Smith is killed in what's reported as a hit and run. Nothing, nothing really comes of the investigation. I think they just sort of call it that pretty quickly and and just close the case. But there were some rumblings around town at the time that it wasn't quite everything it seemed. And uh, I, I guess I'll just say at this point too, I will try to delineate things that I've heard versus things that have been testified to, so it's clear where it's coming from. If it's just rumor or if it's if it's facts that are actually in evidence that, um, cause those are two very different things, obviously. Right. So S- Stephen Smith dies July, 2015, jumping ahead to February, 2018. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I did. Uh, in the, m- most of my, uh, reference, uh, comes from, I just watched the three part HBO documentary that they did on this family, um, that they, put out i think it was the first week in november 2022 so it's very it's relatively fresh just before the trial got started and this one uh this killing of stephen smith uh they interviewed the um their equivalent of the highway patrol i can't remember what they called them uh in this low country of south carolina uh they're they're on record uh being interviewed talking about this uh, alongside my my one of my favorite acronyms I've learned thus far in this case, SLED. Yeah. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Um, but it was it was pretty eye-opening to see, like, you know, you hear about hit and run, okay, whatever. And, and But when you look at, like, they show crime scene photos, they show the picture of this boy, brain splattered, like, blood splattered across the... Uh, this road and he's right in the middle of it. They have it all framed up and the, the, their CHP, their highway patrol equivalent, this guy, he's like, the body wasn't dragged. Shoes were still on, like getting into the nitty gritty. Like there was, uh, he's like, I've, I've been on like, you know, 1100 cases before. And, you know, 
and I've, I've had my share of hit and runs and like, this wasn't, he's like, this body was dropped here. It was left here. If it were hit going at a high rate of speed, even 45 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, if this was where he was hit, there would have been, you know, there's no glass, there's no bits of plastic of the car. It's like when you really see it, it's, it's, it's such a clean hit and run crime scene. It's like, it's bewildering how you couldn't think that like this was clearly someone was dropped here like interesting so that that was like super evident with you know the aid of a documentary and like you're having the visual component you know yeah and you're not just hearing like recalling in a testimony and you're hearing about it in the audio medium like like because they showed crime scene photos everything and 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 you're listening to this uh highway patrol guy talk about it openly and candidly uh it was and there's other things too, like going to the actual victim, Stephen Smith, like they talked to his sister, his mom at length. They talked about like, they showed a map where he was going to, why, why would he be out in that part of the country? Um, his car supposedly ran out of gas. He left his gas cap off. He left his wallet. He left his phone. His sister's like, we talked, he was super tight with his sister. He's like, she, he would have texted me and said, I'm out of gas. I mean, I'm, I'm just letting you know, or like, Hey, can you bring dad, bring the gas can something, you know, really like glaring things like, uh, that looks like he was, uh, uh, like found out there or, you know, someone fucked with his car and siphoned some of his gas and kind of like set him up to be in this position. But yeah, there's a lot of things, um, besides just like the actual crime scene, of, of him being murdered and them call, like the highway patrol guy was like, it was out of our hands. Like the sled team came in and was like, yep. Okay. They called it a hit and run. And then it's, it's like, that's how quick it went from any further investigation. Kind of yeah. like how in the murder on Sunday morning, you know, they were like, okay, yep. It's this guy. And they just dug in tighter than a tick. They didn't interview anyone else. They didn't do a thorough investigation. Like this had all those kinds of watermarks too of the, of this kid's case, which I thought was like, and then, so like later on we get into the case and like how this ties back to this Murdoch family, it's mm-hmm. even more uh, kind of damning or I guess not directly, but like circumstantially it, it, it has a lot more weight than just like, Oh yeah, they may, this guy may have been friends with the older brother. It goes deeper than that, you know? So, yeah. And that's, that's not the last we'll hear of sled incompetence. That's for sure. Yeah. Cause they, fuck, <laughs> they bungled this one, them and, yeah. and the local, local cops. What are there. they too, by the way, like real quick, like I, are they like, it seems like they're a statewide thing. Like yeah. the stadies or like the yeah, state. Exactly. Like, like uh, what is it? SID or CID in some States they call it. Yeah, I think different states call it different things. Like Georgia has the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. It's just like state level cops. Gotcha. Okay. And I don't know if they do it because there's so many rural areas. It doesn't make sense to have big departments all over. So they have the kind of local yokels, and then if something bigger happens, then they call in um, the states, the stateies, who are supposed to be better. But um, right. You know, no one's perfect. So we'll we'll try to be kind to them until they give us enough evidence otherwise. So yeah, the, okay. um, <clears throat> yeah, that's that, all I got for Steven Smith for now. So that incident was July, 2015. And in February of 2018, the Murdoch's had a housekeeper named Gloria Satterfield. And uh, apparently she was doing something at their house and a dog 
accidentally tripped her up. She fell, hit her head, and uh, unfortunately, she ended up dying in the hospital a few weeks later. So, Alex, this this is the first chronologically instance that we can see of his shittery. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not the last, and it's not actually the first. It's just kind of the first in this specific timeline. So the housekeeper dies at his house. So Alex, who is an attorney, like we talked about, he goes to the kids of the uh, housekeeper. I don't know if I said house sitter, but it's housekeeper. Um, Yeah, and this is someone that they were like, they knew for many, many years, took care of their own kids. Like 20 years she worked for them. They were like family. Yeah. Quote, unquote. And one of her sons is some kind of developmentally disabled. So the other son is kind of the point person for dealing with this whole thing. So Alex goes to the kid and is like, Hey, if you sue my homeowner's insurance, because your mom died in my house because of the dog or whatever, if you sue my homeowner's insurance, I can get you some money. And the kids are like, great, that would be awesome since we just lost our mom. And, and so Alex says, well, obviously I can't represent you to sue me. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring in this buddy of mine so he's going to take care of the case for you and we'll work on it and we'll get you guys uh, some money. And he sort of is this the Corey, it. is this the Corey Fleming character? I, yes, I believe so. Okay. Um, and so there's a, there's a $500,000 policy in addition to a $3.8 million umbrella policy, I believe. So it's 4.2 or 4.3. I can't remember the exact number that he's able to get, um, doesn't tell the kids and just keeps the money. So he keeps this 4.2 or $4.3 million, just kind of keeps stringing the kids along. And then after the murders happen, then it sort of comes out like, like a lot of these malfeasance, they come out after the murders because now people are looking at things with a, with a fine tooth comb. So what do you mean by that? How that's, how does he write? Is this where the forge company comes into play? How is he able to take this money? As, was he like an, an executor or like, was so there's he a temporary guardian of these kids. It was a breakdown in two parts. The lawyer who actually was representing the kids was obviously complicit with it as well. So I don't know right. if Alex split the money with him as well, but there was a, per, there's an important sure cut. Yeah. Well, I mean, these guys who take these cases, if they take them on a contingency, there was testimony that they get a third, like 30 to 40% plus their expenses. So, I mean, you can only imagine that's why personal injury is so lucrative, you know, because they're just dealing with insurance companies and insurance companies want it to go away. So a lot of times they don't even have to go to a trial. They just get, they get go away money. They take their third or their 40% depending um, plus expenses. And then they're just, on to the next one. So I, I, I didn't understand what the term was, but I, there was testimony about someone who works for the bank and they, they used some abbreviation like PR, but it almost sounded like it, it's, Oh no, wasn't it? He had power of attorney over uh, something it, of the kids. Yeah, or? It's something like that, but there was a bank employee who was also responsible for ensuring that the money went where it was supposed to. And I think they were complicit with it as well, uh, which I mean, it's not surprising the more the more we learn about the uh, influence of this family, we'll say. Yeah. And uh, people who it's like a it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if, if these people aren't willingly going along with something that's nefarious in their mind, they're thinking, well, this person is so successful and so powerful 
the thing they're asking me to do, it couldn't possibly be against the law because they wouldn't right. have gotten to that position, you know? And so it reinforces in their mind, like, oh yeah, this is fine. So then they get even more powerful and it just builds on top of itself over and over. So that's another thing too, about this family, like their power structure that they've, so over a hundred years, they've also developed these, um, like concentric circles with other power families in this Southern Carolina, the Southern, this low country region. Like another name was the, uh, the Lafitte family. Yeah. Uh, and the Russell Lafitte will come in later. Yes. Uh, Corey, Corey Fleming's family. I think there was a couple other families, um, like bank owners. So they have, they have fingers in these different pies and with these families that they've been, that they've come up with, that have had generations of, of, you know, position and nepotism all littered throughout. So it's this really like fucked up kind of looking family tree of yeah. a few power families in this region. So that that's also how so much of this kind of fuckery is about, is able to go on, which I thought was like really interesting too. Like how, how the, the power concentration can stay like that static for so long, you know? Yeah, and there, there's a lot of symbiotic relationships happening, which... <laughs> Symbology? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the bank, for example, which which we'll, we'll get into later, he needs the bank because he needs money to cover up his wrongdoings. They need him because he's such a good customer, and he has been over the years, and the, the law firm brings them a ton of business, and they've paid millions of dollars in interest, and they have tons of loans. So uh, there's some blind eye turning on behalf of the mm-hmm. bank they end up they end up giving him like a $750,000 loan off the books can you imagine that <laughs> i and i heard somebody there was an expression that i thought was very on point it said well because at one point he overdrafted like 350,000 and the bank's <laughs> like hey we're going to do you a solid we're going to put 400 grand in your account because we know you're good for it and you'll pay it back at the end of the month so i heard somebody with an the expression was if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, you've got a problem. If you owe the mm-hmm. bank a million dollars, they've got a problem. <laughs> so it kind of goes to explain why, when you're dealing with this kind of money, the things that they're willing to do for these big clients are are very different than they would for you or I. So, right. So the next the next step in the timeline is the boat incident, and this is kind of the the focal point, I think, of everything. Mm-hmm. I I think the state would argue that. It might not necessarily be, but this is this is where it's getting ramped up more and more. So this is February of 19, yeah. 2019, a year after the housekeeper dies. Uh, Paul, the younger son, is drunk, driving the family boat with six or seven kids on it. And he plows into like a bridge stanchion or something and fucks a bunch of the kids up. And yeah, uh, a, a bunch of them are injured. One of them is unaccounted for, 19-year-old named Mallory Beach. Super pretty young young gal, and and it was his best friend's like high school sweetheart. Yeah, her boyfriend was on the boat, and yeah, they don't find her body for eight days, and which I mean, is wild, dude. Like the rate of speed they were going, like she must have just like fucking helicoptered out of that thing, like a football field away or something. And yeah, I remember looking at the scene, the bridge, and how narrow this waterway was, and probably how shallow it was too. And how fast this fucker was going while he was blowing a point two eight, so just like blackout drunk, like the force that like 
that that must have been created on hitting this fucking bridge thing. Yeah. It, it's a really weird, short, like tiny bridge, like narrow, like, yeah, it, it must have been super nasty. And uh, so, like I said, they don't find her body for eight days. And if, I mean, you can only imagine the condition her body was in when they found it. Um, not like I needed any more troubling Google results on my shit, but I, I, I wanted to look it up to see what you could expect for a body to be in the water for eight days. And it says, uh, putrefaction and scavenging creatures can dismember a corpse in a week or two. So you can only imagine how far along in that process yeah. her body was. And I've heard about bodies being pulled out of the water that are so waterlogged, they weigh 400 pounds or 500 pounds Holy of a normal sized person. And I imagine it was a horrific sight that her parents had yeah. to identify. So um, you can understand um, anger by her yeah. family and her friends. And so after the boat accident, Paul is charged with felony DWI resulting in death. I don't know exactly what the charges are, but he gets filed on. And they also bring a civil suit against the dad. Um, and I mean, he's such a whale, right? And people sort of dislike him. And so he, you could see why he would be an attractive target. So there's a, there's a criminal case against Paul and then there's a pending civil case against the dad. Um, and we can, we can get into the civil case in a little bit because they are, they are wanting a lot of money. They're going after the liquor store where they bought the booze because Buster actually gave Paul his ID to use. Yep. So they're going after them. They're going after uh, a restaurant where they believe they were drinking before, and it turns into a fifty million dollar civil suit. So it's a big dude. Wa- it's a big watching deal. the documentary, they show all of the. They show there's video that links like they show them all in Paul's truck with his boat. It shows him using the fake ID, and then he comes out with like three cases of beer, and he like lifts them up above his head, like yeah, <laughs> like fucking Damn. got one over on that liquor store. And then yeah, they get like real fuckered up, and they're out on the boat. And then I think I can't remember what what time it is. It's like one or two in the morning, maybe midnight they pull off their boat. There's like a bar like on this like river yes. and it shows them all get off. There's like cameras at that place too. It shows them all get off the bar. It shows like the, the friends trying to pull him back and the Paul, uh, uh, Murdoch, he got, he's like possessed. Like he wants to go take shots at the bar and then get back on the boat. And he does, they go into that restaurant and they show him, He's like throwing back drinks. Then it show all shows them pile back in and then they're like taking their shirts off and shit. They get on the boat. And then that's like immediately after that is when like this scuffle takes place. Like his best friends talking about like him and his friend Connor were trying to get him off. I guess there was a period of time where this Connor cook, uh, his friend actually did drive the boat for a little bit. They were able to get him off, but then Paul got, he like snapped out of it, caught a second wind and was like, this is my fucking boat. Get out of here. And then he takes the wheel and he's going super fast. The girls are all freaking out. They're like, just let us off. Let us off. We'll fucking. And, uh, and then boom, then it yeah. all happens. This is from the perspective of, um, I can't remember his name. Paul's best friend. I think his name was Anthony. Uh, he's the one who was, uh, the boyfriend of Mallory beach. Okay. And then right after there's police dash cam, footage when they're all when the cops and EMTs and shit get there and Paul's standing and he's like smiling 
He's being really weird. He turn, I guess he turns into this alter ego they call Timmy, and <laughs> his hands flex out. He gets all fucking nuts and shit. They talked about that in his backstory, and he's, like, smiling, and he's, like, doing all this shit. And then he calls his grandpa to come help him out, like Elder Murdaugh. Yeah. And then uh, the, the dash cam video shows his friend, I think it's Anthony, he's, like, screaming at Paul. He's like, this is your fault. And he's like, he's a murder. He's like, he's not going to get in any trouble. He's like, you guys yeah. are fucked. And he's like saying all this, like really incriminating shit, like, like yeah. pointing the finger directly at him. And then it shows footage inside the hospital when all these kids get taken and the dad makes like a hundred calls, Alex Murdaugh. He's going in and out of different rooms, telling the kids what to say. And he starts planning this idea that it was Connor uh, Paul's friend who was driving. And then he got a bunch of them to say, I don't know who was driving. So he was doing a lot of nefarious shit, like trying to plant like seeds for like uh, deniability and yeah. like, trying to take the pressure and the, the, the guilt off of his son, which all that shit was like super interesting and made it yeah. look like pretty bad for this family. And like, this guy's just a real piece of shit. This Paul Murdaugh. Like yes. silver spoon asshole bully, like the prototypical just rich kid fucking asshole son of a bitch. I haven't I haven't heard any testimony yet about the the story changing you're talking about, but there has been testimony from several people about how Paul was just a pretty irresponsible dude in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. Including leaving weapons places, losing guns, which is a, a an interesting fact that comes into account later. Hmm. So. Uh, the boat incident was in February 2019. Fast right. forward fast forward to June of 2021. Paul still hasn't been tried for the felony DWI that resulted in death, which I imagine would make her family pretty angry, her boyfriend's family pretty angry, because he's just yeah. he's going to prom or whatever, you know, he's doing he's dating, he's just living his life. They're able to just somehow keep deferring this prosecution for for I mean, over two years. It's insane. So yeah, one you, thing that I thought was noticeably absent from that documentary was Mallory Beach's family was not interviewed at all. And, like, Paul's friends' parents were interviewed pretty extensively. Um, it's probably because they're the ones spearheading the litigation, so they probably yeah. don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and but I can only imagine, too, like, their their family just being, like, not, not able to handle that situation because they yeah. know what happened. Yeah, and the, the Beach family attorney is a character really uh, yeah he's i mean in my opinion he's kind of just like a real scumbag but um <laughs> I, I feel like everyone should reserve judgment but um so in june of 2021 this is when the murders happen maggie and paul they're at their their family wait, wait, wait. before before we get any further did you want to talk about the attempt on alex murdaugh's life or does well, that, that come that comes later oh this comes after this okay yeah. sorry i, no, I had that one backwards it's, it's confusing. So in June of 2021, Maggie and Paul and Alex are all out at their family. It's like a hunting property. They have, they have several properties, but this one is like their hunting property. They call it's, it Moseo. I, yeah, I think that's the name of the city or the town or the village or whatever. They refer to the like their plantation or like this this hunting ground, their house, like the they all have, like, property names for their fucking like the their spreads, you know, like yeah. over there. That's the Moselle house. Yeah. So uh, on on this property, it's an old airstrip as well. So there's a dog kennel facility 
and that like some sheds and stuff. And then the house is a third of a mile away, which isn't, it's an important detail. So Alex's story is they all eat dinner that night, seven, eight o'clock or whatever. He falls asleep on the couch and, and there has been, there has been testimony of, I think, text messages from his wife talking about how, how tired and worn out and run down he's been because his mom has Alzheimer's and she's a mess. Dementia. His, his dad. Oh, wait. Oh, the mom has dementia. The dad has Alzheimer's. Or yeah, no, I think, he's I like think the mom has Alzheimer's. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Mom is in poor health. Dad's in poor health. And they found, he found out that day that his dad was going to have to go back into the hospital and it was looking terminal. So uh, Alex's timeline is he falls asleep on the couch. He wakes up around nine and he's going to go visit his mom because when the dad's gone, yeah, it is dementia. Cause when the dad's gone, she gets like agitated. So he decides right. to go visit his mom. So he wakes up, calls his wife two or three times. She doesn't answer. Um, then he texts her like, Hey, I'm going to visit mom. Um, I'll be back shortly. So drives to his mom's house and he's there for 15 or 20 minutes, talks to her caregiver, comes back home and drives by the kennels because there's, there's two entrances to the property. One takes you right by the kennels towards the house and the other just takes you towards the house. So I'm a little unclear as to which way he left and which way he came back, but he comes back, finds both of them dead and is like, Oh fuck, whoever did this might still be here. So he drives up to his house, grabs a shotgun and some shells, loads it up, drives back to the kennels and calls the cops. And they show up and they just immediately start trampling all over the crime scene. But they call SLED to come down almost immediately, assuming they know this is a high-profile family, brutal double murder. Uh, let's get the stadies in here immediately. And the, the scene was so brutal. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but Paul was shot twice with a shotgun. One, one in like the head or neck area, and one like center mass. Well, there's this is this is an interesting fact to take into account. It was two different types of shotgun shells. The first one was buckshot that went into his chest and like out his armpit. The second oh, one, fuck. the second one, they put the barrel up under his head and it blows the entire back of his head out. His brain hits the fuck. ceiling and lands next to his leg, like on the ground. Because they Jesus. Have, they were interviewing or they were examining some of the responding police officers and they're showing him pictures and, and they're like, is that his brain right there next to his leg? And they're like, yeah, it sounds like an unbelievably gruesome scene. Then they, the mom gets shot like two or three times in the leg with a different gun. And then they said what, an AR-15 style. It's, well, it's an AR style. It's technically a 300 blackout. And I know gun people are, are very particular about the difference. But <laughs> um, yeah, so she shot. She goes down. And then she gets execution shot two more times. Yeah, I think she gets shot in like the shin or the knee. And then like uh, somewhere in the torso, maybe the wrist. And then, yeah, she gets double tapped. So um, I, I had alluded to the gun issue earlier. So a few years prior, Alex had decided to buy two 300 blackouts for his boys, one for each of them. And they both had really fancy like thermal night scopes because they hunt pigs at night. And so you need the whatever. These two guns were like $9,000 total. So they're they're very expensive. Paul goes and loses his pretty quickly because he's just kind of spacey. Uh, they, they had one of his friends testify that Paul thought he lost some other rifle, but he's like, no, it's been at my house for two years. What are you talking about? I have it. Like he just loses shit. Like he's careless. Yeah. Um, so the dad goes to buy him a replacement 
blackout. But this one, he just gets kind of like a bare bones model. He's like, if you're going to fucking lose this again, I'm not buying you another $4,000 gun. Like just, I, I think just the thermal optic sight on it, it alone is two grand. Damn. So, so now he buys a third blackout, right? So like I said, Paul is murdered by a shotgun, two different types of shells, which is unusual buckshot to the chest and birdshot to the face. Oh, and, wow. and Maggie is killed by a 300 blackout. So, I mean, that's, that's to me, f- doesn't that seem like it would be someone like in a hurry and just like grabbing around for some shells in a drawer and slamming them in that shotgun? Well, that's, that's possible. So kind of circling back to the idea of reasonable doubt to, to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to disprove, um, like reasonable alternative hypotheses, right? If, if you were trying to say, like if you were, you and I were in a room alone together and I had a gun and somebody comes into the room and I'm standing there with a gun and you're dead on the ground with a, a bullet wound to the head. It's not reasonable for me to be like, oh, he grabbed my gun, shot himself in the head. And then I just picked up the gun, you know, wh- yeah. I mean, yeah, it's possible, but it's really not that likely. And that's, that's kind of a bad example on the fly. But um, <laughs> so this fact pattern of if he did decide to kill his wife and kid, it's unusual that he would use a shotgun with two types of ammunition and then a separate gun. So right. when the police came to investigate, they they took the shotgun that he had pulled down from the house, right? And they end up emptying it. And there's two there's two rounds in the shotgun. One is a 16. It's a 12 gauge shotgun. It's got a 12 gauge round in it and a 16 gauge round in it, which is weird. So is that is that uh, a sign of somebody who was panicking and just grabbed a gun and grabbed whatever shells were sitting right there because he was afraid of other people on the property. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, could he be trying to, could he, could he be trying to plant the seed of, Oh, look how out of sorts I am. So they search the house and they find only one blackout. He's purchased three total in his life. One got lost and now one is missing. So they, they Mm -hmm. find the third one in the house. Um, All the shotguns are accounted for. And they're forensically not able to match any of the shotguns they have to the murder weapon. Uh, ballistics on a shotgun, it, it's difficult, but I mean, they're swabbing for blood. And if you put a fucking shotgun under somebody's chin and literally blow their head off, you're not going to be able to clean all the blood and brain matter off of that. You know, it's going to be underneath a rail or inside the gun. And right. if you believe the state's timeline, he has about 10 minutes, Alex does, to commit these murders, clean up and leave to go to his mom's house to create an alibi. So without without spinning out of control too much, that that's like the first really interesting fact. Like, why would you use two guns? Why would you take one? Because my operating theory is Paul lost his second blackout. Because there's no, there's no, there hasn't been any testimony that he had it recently. Or uh, Paul had actually been getting death threats and he had been roughed up a little bit because people in town knew who he was, knew that he killed this girl. So people had oh, routinely shit. been like, we're going to fuck you up or, you know, we're going to fucking kill you. So it's reasonable that he was driving around on the property with his blackout, assuming he still had it and that whoever killed him took it off him and killed the mom. And they had, right. they had testimony from, it was even a state's witness talking about the trajectory of the shotgun shots and the blackout shots and how they were different from each other just looking at the crime scene and they actually got one of the one of the state examiners to say like well yeah this this could be consistent with two shooters 
because it just makes more sense that it would yeah. be, which I mean, that in and of itself is, it's literally the definition of reasonable doubt, but we'll see if the jury remembers it because you're saying like, yeah, this alternative hypothesis, this is completely reasonable and we can't really disprove it. They do have a, they do have a firearms guy later. Who's a total, total fucking idiot. And <laughs> we could probably do an entire episode about f- forensic firearm tool mark matching is it's like a total sham and there there are current lawsuits and I think 11 or 13 states to just completely disallow that kind of testimony because what he's wow. getting up there and saying what what they're trying to say is well we know that the rounds that killed Maggie came from uh, Paul's blackout because we have other spent casings on the property that match the ones that they found in the in the kennels but he can't say, I can tell you with 100% certainty that these shells came from this gun. He can only say these are consistent with being cycled through the gun. He can't even say that they're consistent with being fired because if you're, if you're comparing shells, there's no way to um, say with all certainty. It's not like a DNA or fingerprint. You can't say this bullet or this shell casing, whatever came from this gun to the exclusion of all others. So, um, right. If this factory, so it's just like a layman's idea would be like it's the same shell, but there's no way you can tie it to this person's gun versus yes. this other person's gun. Yeah, you can only say like, yeah, it's consistent with being fired from this style of gun. Right. But but they try to go a little too far. It's like what they used to do with bite mark evidence or hair follicle comparison. Mm-hmm. They they can really only go so far as to say like, yeah, this is consistent with being fired from this type of gun, but they can't say like, yep, this is for sure fired from this gun from this gun. Right. Yeah. So, uh, it'll yeah, be my first gut reaction was like, this had to be two shooters. Cause it makes sense having two different, just two different styles of gun and one's like close quarters. One, you could be a little bit farther away and the way it looks like, I think their bodies were, uh, left are staggered, you know, like, yeah, it, it seemed like it would jive like, you know, you one guy you go in close and you hit Paul and then you have a guy like mid range, you know, stationed somewhere waiting for the mom to pop out after she hears the first shot and then you mow her down. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, it could that, be three, that was my first. Reaction. It could even be three shooters. You know, one guy's got buckshot, one's got birdshot and the other has this rifle. So yeah, that's true. So let's see. Um, cops come. He voluntarily uh, sits down for multiple interviews, which I'm not going to say it, but don't ever do that. And you would think that somebody who's a former prosecutor would know this can well, only maybe hurt that's you. Why he he thought he was his ego got in the way, or it's possible, but the the amount of power that he had. So he talks to them for a very long time, multiple times, and there's a funny clip here that I that I got because they don't get anything good from him that makes him look bad. You know, he's got his story, whatever. Mm -hmm. But one thing that they're trying to claim is a confession. I don't know if you've heard this clip. I've heard it thrown around, but I I didn't take the time to seek it out and watch it. Okay. So they're, they're talking to him in a car and he, he's, he sounds very Southern. So I'm, I'm going to play it at full speed and you're going to hear the police officer who was in the car testifying to what he thinks he said. So, um, there's some disagreement. He's either saying I did him so bad or he's saying they did him so bad. So I think I'll play it twice. The first yeah. time, try to hear I 
And then the second time, try to hear they and just see which one sounds better. And then I'll let you hear what the cop purports to have heard. And then what the defense did is they slowed it down a little bit just so you can sort of hear it better. I'll play it slowed Mm -hmm. down and then I'll follow up with some of the funny testimony from the cop who allegedly heard this confession. So I'll play it twice at normal speed and then we'll we'll hear what deputy dipshit has to say about it so hopefully this isn't too loud and sitting here talking today is is tough it's just so bad i did it so bad okay i'm gonna play it one more time and sitting here talking today is is tough it's just so bad i did it so bad all right so on first listen what what do what do you think it sounds like sounds like they okay even if he said I, think about it from an innocent person's point of view. He could be saying, like, I fucking spoiled this kid rotten his whole life. Yeah, I he feel- could have been talking about anything. Right. So, and this is this is really the only from damning. Any context. Okay, so now listen to what the cop says on the stand. Traumatic picture that he saw, Paul and Maggie, what did he say? It's just so bad. I did him so bad. I did him so bad. Yes, sir. Okay. This cop is full of shit. Um I'm going to play it one time real quick at half speed, just so you can kind of hear how different it is. And then I'll tell you why this cop is a fucking liar and a bad one. And sitting here talking today is, is tough. It's just so bad. It's so bad. All right. So, I mean, it, it sounds like they to me, honestly. And, and I've listened to that several times. But even, even if he is saying I, there's... There could be a reasonable explanation as to why he's saying why, right? Yeah, so, if, and if you were if if you had, I don't know. I, I just feel like if you were going to slip and you felt that bad about it, and you yeah. were saying I, and like this is me coming out with it, um, I feel like that it would have it wouldn't be very long after that you would talk about it more. So uh, that I don't know. Maybe that that's cop, giving too much credit. Well, I mean, you, you can infer what they thought he said by listening to the following details, right? So when he says that, if you're a cop and you hear a guy and it sounds like he said, I just did this, what's your first question going to be like, what, wait, what was that? You said, what do you, what do you mean you did him so bad? Like what happened? Tell us what happened. Doesn't say anything like that. You would push on that thing. So when the defense attorney gets up there to cross-examine him, he's like, did you ask him what he meant by that? Like, no. Like, why? It's like, well, I made a mental note of it, and we were going to follow up with him at a later date. And he's like, did you ever follow up with him? It's like, no, we, we, didn't, we didn't get around to it. It's like, you have a double murder, a brutal double murder. And yeah. the, the only potential suspect right now, you claim confessed to you, and you did not ask a single follow-up question about it? That's horseshit. And it should have been immediate. It should have yeah. been like, wait, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah. That's yeah, how, if, that's how fast it sh- it should have been, or you would think would be. Yeah, or even <laughs> even if you're trying to be nice, like, well, what do you mean? You know? Yeah. So yeah, you would you would dig in on that, like. No, no, no. I want to hear it from your lips. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, by the way, I do have a bone to pick with you. Last What's week's that? episode, there wasn't one <laughs> single boner alert. Really? Yeah, I checked with the old lady. Yeah, I was thinking about it when we were done, and the old lady listened to that episode, and so I asked her, I was like, did we get even one boner alert? And she said no. So, uh, Okay, so moving right along, the murder happened in June of 21. So police announced that they were reopening the investigation into the death of 
Mr. Steve Smith, the teenager who died in 2015, based on information gathered during investigations into the murders of Maggie and Paul. So I don't really know too much beyond that. And that seems like a very interesting way of phrasing it. So I wonder if that just means they just were interviewing everybody related to the family and they had multiple people that were like, hey, you know, just so you know, you might want to take a look at this other thing. And yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess cutting straight to it was uh, the Stephen Smith's dad. After he died, he pretty much shut down and like just disengaged with life and was at the, like the bottom of a bottle. And I think he passed away. Um, I think he passed away either before or right after the boating accident accident. So maybe, you know, he lived for like another two or three years around 2018 after his son, Steven was killed in 2015. And I guess before he did family friend and bartender, uh, I think his name is Josh something. He was interviewed. He said, uh, you know, he knew his son was gay and he was like, he's like, I know that Murdoz did it because him and Buster, they were together. And, uh, and he's like, I know there was, he was my son. He's like, I, you know, these things or whatever. Um, and I guess there was rumors too of, uh, so Alex Murdoch's oldest son, uh, Buster, there were some rumors that he may be, uh, playing for the other team. And, uh, it, it doesn't, doesn't really go much farther than that. But then there was like reports of like that night Buster driving around, uh, with like three or four friends in a truck and like yeah. kind of hot rodding around. Um, so there's speculation. This is pure wild speculation is that, you know, like they came across him or they knew where he was going to be and they, they had fucked with his car or something. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, just, you like, can bludgeoned him because like the, the, the actual coroner's report is blunt force trauma to the head. Yeah. And not then the body you go back to you'd expect in a, in a hit and run. Right. But like on the rest of his body, there's no like identifying like bruising like road rash like again like his shoes were still on like that's when like the it it informs later like um the highway patrol like dude talking about all this he's like this is like completely out out of step with procedure it's like i've been through all i've seen all these hit and runs and it's like people's shoes don't fucking stay on uh you know like it, it it was like they it was perfectly just placed in this area and staged to look like a like he was directly in the center of this road too he's like that's not very common they're off to the side they're in a ditch you know and then you can also see like brake tire there's all these things so that made it seem like oh fuck you know like you know it seems like foul play and then it connecting back. And then an, another interesting point, I wish I would have taken better notes on this, but I guess around this time, 2015 Buster Murdaugh was either graduating high school and then he got accepted to, I want to say Wofford uh, university or college. And um, like almost immediately after the Stephen Smith murder, he like disappeared and he, I guess he went to Wofford for like a semester, half semester, and then came back home and then like studied abroad or something like that. But for like a year and a half period, immediately following this kid's death, he was like, he wasn't on social media. He was, he went hmm. like radio silent and people are like, oh yeah, he just went to college, you know? And cause the, I mean, even though we're talking about five counties that are concentrated in this like region, um, 
like the city they're from is like incredibly small, like yeah. Hampton, South Carolina. Like it's so you know that guy well, leaves that, and it's like yeah he's going from college like that they're not keeping in touch. Well, and I, saw, <clears> I, saw, <throat> I saw I saw it reported that Buster got kicked out of law school for cheating. So oh really? I, I don't I don't think the apple falls too far from the tree, but. Circling back to, I'm glad you reminded me of the sled incompetence. But when the cops first arrived on on scene at the dog kennels, they they caution taped it off. But then we're just walking all over the crime scene. So when the investigators actually got there to take pictures of it, they're trying to take pictures of what they think are Maggie's footprints, but they're just fucking covered in other people's footprints. And so on nice. cross examination, they're like, "Do you know whose footprints those are?" And they're like. No, we don't know. Probably one of the technicians, and they didn't take they didn't take pictures of like these t- other tire tracks that were there. They just, I mean, I know it's such an easy thing to go to for defense attorneys. Like, well, the police fucked up the investigation, but I mean, in this case, when you when you look at the the pictures they have, they didn't take them to scale. You know, there's not like a ruler or anything, so you can't really do any measurements. But you look at it, and it's like, yeah, this is this is bungled. So. Um, Okay, so let me just blow through a couple more of these timeline points, and then we can get to the good stuff. So later in June of 2021, police announced that they're reopening that investigation like we talked about. Moonlight Graham. So September of 21 is when things really start to go bad for Alec, from bad to worse. Um, and I call him Alec. What's your preference? I don't even know what I've said so far. I've probably gone. I've <laughs> probably, probably gone. Jump back eighty times. <clears throat> so uh, a lot of his financial <clears throat> my, misdeeds. My name. <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> my name is Alex. So in September of twenty-one, um, his financial misdeeds have come to light at his law firm, which we can get into more in, in a minute. And uh, he is fired. And he was a partner at this law firm, so this is a big deal. And there are, there are implications of wrongdoing by other people at this law firm also. Uh, the next day, he claims he gets a flat tire. He's changing it by the side of the road. This guy comes up, shoots him in the head. They life light him, whatever. It turns out he had hired this man to kill him so that Buster can get the insurance. Where, you know, if you think, if you think the guy's guilty, that makes sense. But also, if you think the guy's not guilty... You could also see that making sense. Like he's just miserable. Fuck his life's over uh, by all accounts. Every, every single person that testified and we're still in the state's case, they haven't been able to, to find in any single person to testify that his relationship with his family was anything other than like ideal. There's no right. one that talks about like fighting with his wife, fighting with his kid. Well, um, in the documentary, they were very adamant about like, there's a, a second how like, um, well, they have a beach house. Yeah, what what is it called? It starts with an E. I don't know, and, and I know they say the the mom preferred to stay at the beach house because she liked well, the ocean. That and I also in the documentary they talked about. I guess they were on the outs, and she was actually just staying there because they they weren't getting along. And then the night that she went to uh, meet Moselle. Alex for dinner, and like and go to their house at Moselle, um, she texted her friend. He wants me to come uh, over or something like that. Yeah. And it seemed so, like, you know, like it wasn't common that, th- that they were like eating dinner together. Like it, this was, a, he was like, Hey, let's kind of get together. You know, maybe we've been separated for a few weeks, you know, like, so like I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit on that because okay. 
there has been not a single uh, piece of testimony saying that they were having any kind of marital problems. And you know that if any friend of hers came forward and said, like, yeah, she confided in me that we were having problems, they would have they would have put them up on the stand already. They might be saving that for the very end. Uh, I haven't because, like I said, they were they were supposed to wrap up the entire trial after the third week. And as we record this, the state is estimating that they need three more full days of testimony. So it still could come in. And that would be pretty damning if they had Mm -hmm. like an ace in the hole that they've been holding back because they they do have some circumstantial pieces of evidence that point to him as being guilty, which we can get into shortly. But they don't have much. But that would be pretty damning if they had. Yeah, because if if what was in this documentary, if they put that person, her friends, on the stand, like she, they have te- they have uh, records of the text messages too. Like it was, um, they could uh, be Maggie saving that. Maggie didn't want to go to the lodge and suggested uh, they meet at a public place. Maggie texted a friend saying Alex sounded fishy and was up to something. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. at Alex's insistence, she went to the lodge and after parking her car at the house, walked to the dog kennels where she found her son, Paul. That's all. I don't, that's all highly speculative. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, if, if they have a friend, but I was thinking about it too. I was like, is the element of fear still there for some people knowing how powerful this family and, and people that are still, cause there are a lot of people that are still um, loyal to like the name, despite all the embezzlement and stuff that's come out against Alex. Um, but you would think like at this point, like it seems like the house of cards is coming da- down, like that you would feel safe in, you know, offering testimony or offering information like that, but who knows? So after his, uh, attempted suicide stage murder. He, you know, admits he has a he has a drug problem, and that's why he's been stealing all this money. So he goes into rehab. Do you think then, that's real? Um, I don't know. I think it's my possible. first reaction. I was like, this seems just like another like he's got like you know Plan B, D, you know C, C, yeah. D, E, F, and G, and like okay, we're gonna play the drug, you know, like because he he can put a lot a lot off on that. Yeah. And he gets to go to this rehab facility and I don't know how much of like testing, like do they have to show he was on it and like have evidence? Like they can't just say he, he can just say, Oh yeah, I was, I was spending like 12 grand a month on this shit. You know, like, I, I don't know where all that money went. Um, yeah. But so, okay. So this is where it, it gets interesting. So later in September of 21, South Carolina law enforcement officials, they were now opening an investigation into the death of Miss Satterfield, the housekeeper who died back in 2018. Not sure why. It sounds like they wanted to exhume her body. Um, so even more information is even more information is coming up now after the murders because such a light has been shown onto the family. Which Quick piece of information about that one that's interesting is there's the 911 call. The mom, Maggie, uh, just says she fell. And then, but the initial report uh, was that a dog, like Alec, Alec's story was a dog had run across her path and she tripped and it caused her to fall. Well, you know what? But on the, the 911 uh, call, the mom's like, hurry, send help. She she just fell down the stairs. I mean, that could just, maybe she missed the, the dog part happening, but there's you know things what? there that they can pick away at, like inconsistencies. That you know what I think? Are I think she probably did just fall down the stairs. But Alex knew 
oh, if I can if I can pin this to my homeowners and steal the money, I can get five fucking million dollars. You think he was that on it? Like, yeah, just like sh- Ab- ice absolutely. water in his veins. Yeah, I mean yeah. because uh, the one son is developmentally disabled, and the other son who testified, he also seems a little. I mean, he seems like a smart kid, but he seems um, vulnerable to exploitation. I'll just say that. Yeah. He seems like a sweet kid who would just yeah. believe anything that this guy says because he looked up to, up to him for so long. So right. he, he saw him as a mark, I think. So when, when she died, he thought like, oh, yeah, I could be vulnerable point. here. Oh, maybe I can turn this to my advantage. So that kind of, <sighs> I know, it's, it, it's hard to divorce yourself from this guy can be a huge piece of shit guilty of all these financial crimes, but maybe not necessarily guilty of uh, the murder. So in July of 2022, he's charged with the murders. And normally, one of your constitutional rights is you have a right to a speedy trial. They can't just arrest you and hold you indefinitely and not try you. Uh, A lot of defendants will waive your right to a speedy trial because you want more time to prepare. You want to look at all the discovery that the... So when you're charged the crime the state has to give you everything they have they call that Mm -hmm. discovery so you want more time to look through everything they have to try to find holes that you can poke and whatever so a lot of times defendants will waive their speedy trial right to give themselves more time to prepare he did not Mm -hmm. waive his speedy trial that's why it's going to trial so fast but he hasn't been tried yet for the financial crimes which brings up a really interesting point which i don't know it might be kind of boring to a lot of people but i think it's interesting so you, you have to think of these as two separate things, right? There's the murder trial and then there's the financial crimes trial. He's, he's charged with like a hundred counts of being a dickhead with, mm-hmm. uh, for the money stuff. Uh, they estimate that he, he stole over eight, almost $9 million in total. That's just what they know of. There was, mm-hmm. um, there was some, <clears throat> like we talked about financial fuckery going on with the bank and his law firm. So who knows what it could actually be. So the state, they have a pretty weak cir- circumstantial case for the murder trial. I don't think anybody would argue that. Even in their opening statement, they mentioned how circumstantial evidence is still evidence. It's good. You know, please don't <laughs> don't mind us. But, nice. They're leading with that. Baseball. Yeah. So they are dying to get the financial crime info into the murder trial, right? Because it makes them look really bad. Mm-hmm. And it's not too much of a leap to be to say like this guy is such a huge piece of shit. Why wouldn't he kill his wife and kid? Because the the theory of the state is he killed his wife and kid to avoid accountability for all the money he was stealing, which well, doesn't yeah, make any sense. That, that ties into if you look at it through was was he on the outs with his wife and did she threaten divorce? Which I I've saw some stuff about. And if so, that would be very, very messy for him financially, like having to disclose things like you'd be, he'd be wide open for people to like, cause she would want, you know, 50, 50. I don't think they had a prenup that wasn't mentioned. So, you know, she's going to want to, to get what's hers, you know, out of that yeah. deal. And so he would have had to, yeah, he would have opened himself up to like, where's your money? Because, you know, as much as he wants to blame you know, stuff on his drug addiction. I, I mean, he was a smart guy. I'm sure he's got some of that money somewhere and busters in on it too. Like he, he's, he's like a foreign bank, you know, like, so the morning of the murder, the CFO of his law firm actually confronts him 
about some misappropriated funds. So, and the week of the murders, the Beach family, who is suing him civilly, they are going into, like, that lawsuit is starting also. But right. So, if, if you look at it on the surface, his law firm is figuring out what he's doing. Um, the Beach family is closing in, and part of their that civil suit is he's going to have to turn over his financials to the to these other attorneys, and they're going to yeah, find that's out. A good point too. But killing his wife and kid does nothing to make that go away. It doesn't make any sense. But but going back to the financial crime, huh. murder crime, murder trial, bifurcation, the state is trying to get that financial crime info in so bad from the very beginning. I thought they did. Wasn't that well, the most did. recent? In the- in they the did past two or three days, okay. but it was a fight. So, um, what's sorry what, if I if I stole your thunder? You no, you're fine. That no, you're fine. So <clears throat> they've been trying to get this stuff in from the very beginning, and this this judge kind of sucks. Actually, he's kind of just sitting back and not really doing much. He's he's kind of just like, well, yeah, let's let's just see how it goes. And you know, it he's been very permissive. I'll say that, and and certain things he shouldn't he shouldn't have been because some of his rulings have been overly deferential to the state and things he said, it's like, well, it's a circumstantial case. So, uh, I'm going to allow it. Bas- basically what he's saying is it's a pretty weak case. So I'm going to let them introduce all of this speculative nonsense bullshit and kind of let mm-hmm. just punt it to the jury. So the way you're able to get in, uh, these financial crimes, it's what they call a prior bad act. So mm-hmm. like for, for example, if, if you, Jim were on trial for, embezzling from your company. And if I'm the state and I know that 10 years ago you cheated on your wife and I wanted to bring that up to make you look bad, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be allowed because it has nothing to do with the crime you're being accused of. It's just to make you look bad. Right. And it's, it's what they, it's attacking your character. Exactly. And it's not like there's no relevant connection from what I'm trying to bring in to what you're accused of now. Right. And that's what they call, it's called rule 404 B. It has to do, I think it might be a federal thing, but it, it could be state specific also. You're only allowed to bring in prior bad acts to show motive, identity, the existence of a common scheme or plan, the absence of mistake or accident or intent. So we could break those down one by one, but the only one that would apply here is motive, right? They're not trying to bring it in because they're trying to prove he did a similar financial scheme. It, it It's only to show that this was the motive for the murder. And then it became really complicated because the the state had to do what they call a proffer, which is like a separate hearing outside of the jury to show the judge, this is why we think this evidence should come in under this 404B. This is why it should be valid. But the judge didn't want to fuck up the schedule even more than it already was. So they were doing regular testimony with witnesses and the jury And they were also doing this other, what they call in-camera testimony, which is these witnesses without the jury there to see if this would be admissible later, right? So the way it works is if if you want to admit these prior bad acts of crimes that he hasn't been convicted of yet, because he hasn't gone to trial on that yet, they have to prove, like we talked about earlier with the burden of proof, they have to prove the financial crimes by clear and convincing, so not beyond a reasonable doubt, which they would have to do in actual trial. Because right. this is kind of a dry run, it's like, hey, just show me that it's that it's pretty likely that he's guilty of this. Right. But the problem with that is they also have to link it to the motive. Like, yeah, um, 
roughly prove to me that he committed these financial crimes, but then show me how this connects to the murder. And so right. they put up they put up witness after witness testifying to all this financial shit he did. His best friend, he stole he stole a hundred dude, and his testimony was it was brutal. Um, but yeah. on on cross examination by the defense, they basically got him to admit like he was a great dad. He loved his family. He would do anything oh, for God. us. You know, it was it was not good for the state. Anyway, so I think I mean me personally, I think that some of the prior bad act stuff should have been allowed to come in. Like for example, um, his the CFO confronting him that morning. I mean, yeah, that's relevant. You could say that that set him off or whatever. Yeah, it could be a trigger. Like, oh, but fuck. the state, the state wanted to bring in all ninety nine counts or like everything that they had, and the judge right. was like, "Yep, that's fine. We'll bring it all in." So then, all of those witnesses who testified outside of the presence of the jury now they have to testify in front of the jury, which is why the the trial is going now to last it became distended one hundred and fifty seven years. So, but it's interesting. Show uh, the picture of Charlie when he shit his pants in Niagara Falls. So the CFO, the one who confronted him, they when she was on the stand, she was testifying that apparently he's been stealing money for 10 years. And so everyone's kind of looking at her like, you're the CFO and you didn't notice he was stealing money for 10 years. Right. But what that suggests why to me it, is. Why is it now? Because they're all skimming money, I think. Because the way they the way they handle their payouts is at the end of the year, when they decide how much of a profit the firm has made, then they disperse like these bonus checks. Mm -hmm. But some of the non-partners also get these bonus checks. So it it sounds like some of these lawyers will hold back money to make the, the firm look not as profitable. So at the end of the year, the other employees don't get as much of a portion and, it, and they're yeah. somehow able to like slide that over. They're just there. moving money around. And yeah. she even she even testified that there have been times where they found out somebody had taken money from a client account. And they're like, it wasn't a problem because we would just tell them and they would pay the money back. But it's like a huge, that's a huge no-no. And that law yeah. firm, when, when the uh, spotlight was shown on Alec, everybody was looking at them to the point where he got fired, he got disbarred. Mm-hmm. And that law firm collapsed and they just started a new one. She's still mm-hmm. the CFO. So she was clearly in on whatever financial fuckery was going yeah. on, mo- moving stuff around. The, um, oh, what was the guy's name? The CEO of the bank. You had uh, Finette or what was it? Oh, Russell Lafitte. Lafitte. Um, he got fired and charged yeah. with wire fraud because he was also helping Alex move money around surreptitiously and probably other people from the law firm. That Corey Fleming character who I think he utilized for the, um, the housekeeper, the nanny fund, both of those two each face over 20 charges tied to Alex Murdoch's string of financial crimes over the years. So yeah. Yeah. So could that be potentially two more people who have motive to kill his wife and kid more than him? I mean, because what the state is arguing is he killed his wife and kid to prevent being found out about these financial crimes. But the the exact opposite is true. All this, all of this um, attention has just come put, because his wife and yeah, son were and killed. There's been tons of testimony about how successful he was at 
borrowing money from Peter to pay Paul and just constantly moving money around, keeping everybody happy. We talked right. about the the loan he got earlier, 750 grand off the books just because he asked for it. Um, Damn. That other lawyer testified that he had 50 to 60% of all the personal injury trial uh, cases going on. It's just a constant steady stream of money coming in. So, you know, he might have been in debt, but he always had money coming in that he could just move around. And right. e- even the friend that he stole money from, quote unquote, it it gets kind of complicated, but I don't think he necessarily intended to steal from him. I think he just got put in a tough spot where he's like, fuck, I don't have the money to pay him back right now. But if he would have kept bringing the money in like he had been, he just would have paid him back and they would have forgotten about it. Just the same way he did with his law firm for years. Like, oh yeah, sorry. Because he had all of these excuses where, oh no, I asked I asked him to, to make the check out to me personally because I'm trying to shield assets from this boat civil lawsuit. And everyone was fine with that because really... Not to hearken on it too much, but the state is claiming he killed his wife and son brutally to cover up these financial crimes. But really, the financial crimes he was doing, he was doing to protect his assets for his family. Like he was trying to put his money in a place where if he got this huge civil judgment against him, it wouldn't fuck over his entire family. It would just fuck him over. So... So where does that? If I shoot you point blank, where what do you what do you think happened, and what do you think he did? Um, I don't know. I mean, he might have done it, but I definitely don't think the state has has proven it beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't even think they've come close. Um, I think they're doing a lot of table pounding and yelling, and they're being very theatrical. Mm-hmm. But and, and there was a bomb threat in the courthouse the other day, so it's like yeah, a, I just saw that too. It's a it's a big. <laughs> He's def- the so the lead prosecuting attorney is actually an assistant attorney general for the state of South Carolina. So he's a big dude that they brought in. Mm-hmm. The main defense attorney is a state senator from South Carolina. So these are two big dogs going at it, and they both have large teams. So they're you know it's a very high powered prosecution and very high powered defense. Um, at this point, at, at this point in a trial. You're supposed to believe the state's version of the story, and then the defense takes over, and then you're supposed to weigh both of those together. Haven't even heard the defense's side of it, but, I mean, they're already ahead. But who knows? I mean, predicting predicting verdicts um, is kind of foolish because you never know what the jury is actually paying attention to. Get a load of this. It's supposed to be a three-week trial. It's probably going to be four or five or six. The jury's not allowed to take notes, so they're just sitting there. Isn't that dumb? Taking all of this in? Yeah, why are they not allowed to take notes? I don't know, but... Are they sequestered right now in this kind um, of I don't know, actually. That's a good case. question. I feel like you. Sh- they should have been like off Jump Street, especially like now in this day and age of like social media and everyone's got a phone. It's yeah. like things happen at the speed of light, you know? Like, have you seen any of this stuff? Have they... Have, have, has the state harped on the, uh, like the OnStar, like the GPS stuff on his car? Yeah. And it's, it's been abysmally disappointing. Uh, in their, in their opening, they talked about, you know, we're going to show you telemetry of the car and blah, blah, blah. What they did was they got his car, they downloaded his OnStar infotainment system and it was encrypted. So they spent a year 
one year att- attempting to decrypt it. And this this guy for the FBI created his own software to try to like uh, collate the data. And it's a whole clusterfuck and unreliable. It only shows if the car's in park or not, if the engine's on or not. Like it, it seems really unreliable. And yeah, when the defense got up there to cross examine him, they're like, well, did you try reaching out to OnStar? No. Why? We just like to do things ourselves. Like you could have, you could have potentially gotten GPS location data from OnStar, but you just didn't. Yeah, we didn't. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, there was, there's interesting cell phone data. I, I put interesting in quotes because I don't know how much credence I give to it, but they, they're able to track steps by time. And Mm -hmm. the theory is if he killed his wife. Okay. So here's another interesting thing about the scene. The murder weapon's gone. One of the shotguns they assume is still there, but cleaned immaculately. Her phone is missing. Paul's phone is still in his pocket. Her phone is tossed half a mile down the road. And when they look at her cell phone data, the last orientation change of her phone, which you would assume would be somebody throwing it out the window as they're driving down the road, that, Mm -hmm. that last orientation change happens a half mile down the road at the same time that Paul is turning his car on at the house, which, I mean, even just that in and of itself is, he literally can't be two places at the same time. But uh, to go even deeper, they have his cell phone and hers. And and if you look at them side by side, it'll show between this time, this many steps, and then on her phone, this time, this many steps. Uh, They torch this guy on cross because they're asking him, at any time, do those steps coincide with each other? Which would suggest... He walks down there, picks up her phone, and then him, his phone and her phone are traveling at the same time. And they never, they never convene. So, I mean, that's just one more, one more piece of evidence that, and it's not even the defense's job to prove anything. All they have to do is right. raise reasonable doubt, which I feel like they've done more than enough of. Um, so I do have a list here of possible alternative suspects. Uh, okay. There's the, oh, it's a Cowboys motorcycle gang. That was the gang that he prosecuted when he worked for the solicitor's office so if you're listening i want you to think who has more of a motive to murder the wife and son alex or the following list of people uh the cowboys motorcycle gang the family of stephen smith friends of stephen smith the family of the housekeeper friends of the housekeeper mallory beach's family friends there are six other kids on the boat i imagine they'd be pretty pissed off that their friend died for nothing and paul is out just living life like normal. Um, any right. of the law partners he stole from, any of the friends he stole from. I saw an interesting theory. This was not testified to, but apparently the property they live on is also on a river, which is a big drug smuggling route. Mm-hmm. And it, he's he's claiming to be a drug addict. And somebody was, I saw something that said, if you owe a drug debt, they're not going to kill you because they still want their money back. So they're going to kill right. your family. Right. Right. <laughs> and there's also, I saw, I saw some stuff. I don't know if they brought charges, but that there's some like, uh, like some kind of drug ring or something that could be involved with yeah. Alex Murdaugh as well, which I mean, if you buy like point blank that he was addicted and he was on oxy and all these different kind of opioids and shit. And he was also running just cause he loved money clearly. Um, and the power and everything. Maybe he was 
facilitating in some way or being like a money man for movement. And he, he'd have his supply, like his cut of shit yeah. just to like fuel his habit um, and all, and have it just like always on lockdown. Um, yeah. I mean, that's not outside of the realm of possibility. Yeah. It's, I mean, when you look at it on its face, it's like the scumball fucking, he's got all this power and you know, his kids are bullies and pieces of shit and he's stealing money. It's like, Oh yeah, he killed his wife and his, that's probably what happened, you know? And, but the more you get into all the different variables, it's like, I I, I don't even know, honestly. I mean, if yeah. I think about one, you know, like, you know, the parents of you know, you know Mallory Beach, you know. Yeah. Like what if the dad was just like, you know, or the boyfriend hunter or yeah, in cahoots with the boyfriend who's pretty tore up about it. Although in the documentary he like he seemed like a pretty simple kind of country boy and he he went out of his way actually to say, you know, like I've I'm not going to speak ill of Paul and you know, he'd made his amends to me. So he didn't he didn't seem like very fired up or like I, I, I saw a report that he th- had threatened to kill Paul <laughs> at some point, which I guess if you did kill him in the documentary, Dude. you you would be like, oh, shucks. I don't know. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. Because, dude, the 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 dash cam like of them getting fished out of the boat and like the girls are screaming, there's blood and stuff. He is like, yeah, he's screaming at Paul. He's like, yeah. why are you laughing? You motherfucker. Like, he's like, I'll fucking, I think he says, I'll kill you. Like, yeah. and he's like, and he's telling him, he's like, this is a murder. Good luck. Ain't nothing going to happen to him. Like, like he went off and, uh, but yeah, I don't know. This is just such a fucking convoluted web of shit. Like, so there was a, there was a guy who worked at the kennel, like a farmhand. And I think, I think it came up on, um, one of Alex police interviews in quotes, but it's always an interrogation folks. If the, if the cops ever want to talk to you, it's not an interview. It's an interrogation, whether you know it or not. And they were talking about uh, how Paul had texted him or called him a couple days before and was like, yeah, this fucking weirdo that you hired to work down at the kennels is telling me how he was, he was hired by the CIA to assassinate black Panthers. And Paul is just, he, when the guy started talking about this crazy shit, Paul pulled out his phone and was recording it. Like, yeah, buddy. Well, what, what were you saying? And the guy's like, yeah, the CIA hired me to assassinate black Panthers. And (laughs) what the fuck? Unrealized idea. Unrealized. So I will say there's, there's two other things I want to cover. One is, um, Mallory beach and her, scumbag attorney let's save that for the for the last the i would say the the biggest piece of evidence that points towards alex as being guilty is there's a snapchat video where yeah. okay so the the timeline that the state is proposing is the last cell phone activity from paul and maggie is around 8:50 there's a snapchat video that apparently came up at like 8:45 of them down at the kennels and they're they're filming a dog that they're boarding for a friend, like just showing his tail because something's going on. And in the background, you can hear Maggie and a third voice. They've had he's like, "Hey, come here, boy." It's like it's a chicken. It's <laughs> these are the most obnoxious voice people in the world. And I don't know if you've been watching any of it, 
but the uh, I haven't watched any of the trial. I've only on the out, on the outside looking in is what I've uh, broached. So the state they have a a very young female attorney who I guarantee it's her first trial, and she's just there to kind of help and question witnesses that have nothing to do with anything, but to just get the experience. And she looks just like Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice. <laughs> she's very cute, but you can tell she's nervous. And anyway, so. Um, the Snapchat video, which, I mean, it could be damning if it, if it torches his alibi that he was asleep at the time, but right. I mean, it could be, uh, it could be not his voice. It could be the time is wrong because cell phone service out there is wrong. Um, yeah, it could be, I mean, it, it even could be, I don't, I don't know for sure. I've heard people speculate that he, cause he said he never went down to the kennels. But it's possible when he left, he drove by that entrance like we talked about. There's one that goes by the kennels and one mm-hmm. that doesn't. He could have driven by, saw the chicken thing, got out real quick and was like, it's a, it's a fucking, it's a chicken. And then just got in his car and left. <laughs> and then when they interviewed him later, he's like, I don't, I didn't go to the kennel. It could be like he misspoke. It, it could be he misspoke, right? Yeah. So I imagine the defense is going to put up somebody to say that the voice isn't his because it's. The state, I think, had two or three people that they're like, yeah, that's Alex, 100%. <laughs> or they could dispute the time. They could say that it was an hour before or maybe right. two hours before. And they even had a dumpy Snapchat professional come to testify. And oh, I don't think it did very much because they were asking. Go to like, bed, you sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, I honestly can't think of anything else that the state has put forward as like a very was it, damning one, piece of One evidence. headline I just saw was they found like a slicker or a coat that oh, had perfect uh, segue. That is a perfect segue. Yeah. So with gun residue. So GSR, as we call it, gunshot yeah. residue, that is also complete hokum, a word that you like, <laughs> especially, especially when you're, when you're at a hunting lodge, where they are shooting uh, around. That's a good point. I mean, they their expert even testified that you could pick up a gun, put it down, and have GSR on your hands. It doesn't prove anything. It's nonsense. It's more nonsense. But what you're referring to is the the night Was of it like cordite or some shit. What is my, what's no. cordite? Okay, I, I I think I'm juxtaposing two different words. I thought there was some another uh, name. Or like uh, like something beyond gunshot residue, like that shows up on your hands. I thought there was something else. Like I thought it was called cordite. You might be right. Um, so yeah, see. the night the night of the murders, his alibis. He went to his mom's house to check on her, laid in bed with her, held her hand, and then left. And the caretaker. So this is important. The caretaker. I think it was three days later. His dad died, by the way, three days later. So I think it was a week later. He came back to the house and she, the caretaker said, it was very weird that he came by so early in the morning and he had, he had a, uh, a tarp in his hand and he went upstairs and it was just weird. Like he said he was leaving, but then he didn't leave. And like her testimony was really kind of all over the place. It didn't make any sense and it didn't help the state's case at all. No. So doesn't sound like it. But then the state is trying to introduce this rain jacket they found yes and they're trying to 
say that what she saw as the tarp is the rain jacket. And they're saying that the rain jacket has GSR on, or yeah, GSR like on the inside and not on the outside. And they're, they're trying to ask her or they're trying to ask the technician, another dumpy broad, like, is that consistent with somebody who carried a gun in the jacket? But there's, there's multiple problems with this. Uh, one, if you were to take a rain jacket and lay it on the ground and roll it up, roll up a gun inside to throw it away. Um, I imagine you wouldn't take it to your mom's house. And if you did, the GSR would not be on the inside of the jacket. It would be on the outside. Right. So Unless you rolled the gun up on the inside of the jacket, Steve. Well, yeah, but does that make more or less <laughs> sense? Does it make more or less sense than this? If you live at a hunting property and you're always shooting guns, and then you put on a rain jacket, there's going to be more GSR on the inside from your clothes than the outside. Yeah. Right? That makes more sense. But it doesn't matter because she never said she saw a tarp. She said, or she never, sorry, I'm confusing the two. She said she never saw a rain jacket. She said she saw, she saw a tarp. Right. So the, the, same, the state's trying to frame it like, well, it could have been a rain jacket, right? Yeah, exactly. And so. And if it was a rain jacket, so they're like. Yeah. Yeah. And this fucking judge, this piece of shit, <laughs> the, the defense is like, she never said she saw a rain jacket. She said she saw a tarp. And when they asked her on cross where they found it was in an upstairs bedroom. They were like, have you ever, uh, do you go up there often? She's like, I've been up there two times in years. It's like, okay, so you, you didn't actually see it where it is. And in the States like, well, you know, that's a question for the jury to decide. And the judge is like, <laughs> I'll allow it. It's like, okay. I mean, fuck, you're just going to allow everything. So, but huh. even if it's true, it doesn't matter. I mean, they even got the, uh, I think it was the sled GSR tech nation. I mean, you would only bring that up if somebody's like, I've never shot a gun. I wasn't there that night. I didn't wear the clothes. I never shot a gun. He literally said he went and picked up a gun and brought it back down to the kennels. And they they asked her like, um, is this man a GSR consistent with somebody who like picked up a gun? She's like, yeah. Like, okay, well then what the fuck are we doing here? Like, yeah, it's irrelevant. All they're trying, I think all they're trying to do in it, all they're trying to do is just kick up a bunch of dust and make it look like, look how guilty yeah. he is. We made you sit here for 11 years. Yeah. It definitely seems like they're, they're, they're scraping, they're clawing and like, you know, cause all these things that I've seen that are like headlines, you know, on, on the internet that make it seem like, Ooh, new bombshell discovery, the rain jacket that had gun residue. And then we talk about it, you know, and what's actually, cause I'm not watching the uh, case proper, like the trial and you are, and that's, that stuff just getting chewed up. So, so the last thing yeah. I want to bring up is, yeah, yeah the, I think we should cut it off here in the next like 10 minutes and then yeah. a part two kind of in the next few weeks, three, two or three weeks when there's something like some kind of meaningful milestone to kind of come back and, and review. So the housekeeper I just mentioned who testified, yeah, it could have been that because they, they tried to rehabilitate her on redirect. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I said, I didn't see that, but it could have been that. And that's how the judge was like, I'll allow it. <laughs> so her name is whatever. Barbara Smith or, or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> so just remember that fake name. So Mallory Beach, the, that poor young lady, her yeah. family hired a civil attorney. His name is Mark Tinsley scumbag. <laughs> haven't, haven't seen it testified to, but I've heard 
rumblings that he actually installed a camera at the Moselle property to kind of keep an eye on the comings and goings of the people there, which is an interesting fact when you're trying to... And doesn't it sound kind of like nefarious or kind of illegal? Yeah. Stalking, spying could be construed there. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how much you want to get into how much of a piece of shit this guy is, but he was going after Alex for $50 million. Damn. And, and um, Alex was like, I'm broke. My boat policy insurance is 500000 I could maybe cobble together a million for you. And his uh, Tinsley's testimony was like, I I can't I I need to I I need to save face basically so I can't take that much money, and then an an, inter- an interesting thing happened last night where a GoFundMe was set up for what's her name, and the first person who donated was Mark Tinsley, which makes it appear that he was paying her for her testimony because it's pretty damning for him, and Tinsley God. stands to gain financially substantially. If there's a verdict against Murdoch. So it, it's very improper. So if you imagine if she was on the stand and she finished her testimony and he walked up and handed her a thousand dollars. Like, right. Yeah. That's the same imp- thing. That's improper. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how that turns out. But <laughs> Tinsley jewels, man. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I keep two on me like stuck on you. I don't remember that. It's been too long. (laughs) Oh, man. I wonder if I should sample it. (laughs) Sorry. You have derailed. Sorry, Daddy. Uh, Billy, no gibberish at the table tonight. (laughs) Symbology. All right. So is that, you think we'll put a pin in uh, the Murdoch case for now? Yeah, I think that's a good stopping point for now. Okay. Uh, if I've yeah. if I've misstated or fucked up anything, send us an email. Yeah, please do, or any other hate mail in general. Um, you can send reach us, out to us. Send us your theory. Yeah, what do you all think about uh, this uh, Murdoch case thus far? I I've been totally had blinders on. I had no idea what the fuck this was about at all, and come to find out, it's like you know people have been following it for a couple years and. And now it's this big thing, you know, like sweeping the country on the trial and everything. So, yeah, I just kind of, I felt like I just, I was like, oh, shit. Like I was born under, like living under a rock for a while. But, um, yeah, if you want to uh, give us your theory or or thoughts uh, or have any other fun little anecdotes about this case, uh, you can reach us via email at wax at waxingtheporpoise.com or either of our socials, Instagram is waxingtheporpoise or Twitter is at waxingtheporp. Um, I got a couple little housekeeping things before we sign off. One, I <clears throat> I don't know what, this is just a, a fun thing I wanted to show you and a, a fun little soundbite. Are you familiar with the uh, Liver King? Yes. Do you know who the, the Liver King is? Yeah. So here's the Liver King. I don't know if this is pre, yeah, I was on steroids or post, but uh, pretty good. Your poops come out perfect, crispy, hard. You know, you don't have to waste time wiping it, so you're good to go. You don't wipe. No need to. <laughs> What's next? You don't wipe your butt after you poop. Every once in a while, just for assurance, I'll take a look. How many times do you need to check? How do you look 
if you don't wipe, how do you look? <laughs> how do I look? What are you talking about? You put your head between your legs. You know that you're good to go. So you don't wipe. I, most of the time I don't wipe. <laughs> I don't need to wipe. Dude, is that real or is that just clipped? <laughs> Either way, it's funny. Dude, I had to watch it two or three times when he's like, sometimes I wipe or sometimes I do for assurance. Yeah. He's like, but how do you, how do you know? You if you don't know. wipe, how do you, how do you know? Do you look underneath your legs? And he's like, wait, wait, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, are you just checking your hand? Like, you just said you don't wipe. <laughs> Dude, he's such a freak in nature. It's like such a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I saw that and I was shocked to find <laughs> out he was on steroids. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. This poor kid's too. He's making him like fucking do like five mile hikes with like weights and shit on with him. Like he has kids. He has like his, yeah, he has his own like fucking brood and everything. Yeah. Like, like getting them to buy into like the ancestral tenants. <sighs> That's so arrogant. Yeah. That's screw off. Yeah. Um, we have, I, I, I always, I keep forgetting, but, uh, my my brother-in-law Carl is a fan of the show and he's he's had a couple little notes on on some episodes and this one I fucking uh forgot about it. I've forgotten a couple times, but I wanted to just read a couple of his comments real quick that he left us on Instagram. So, my brother-in-law Carl commenting on our last episode Jennifer 8 Great episode. I don't know if I had seen this one years ago or not. I only know that there was one movie that I that I knew of that takes place in Eureka, California. I guess this one was one I was thinking of because we used to go there all the time as kids. But I actually had to stop and look up online who the killer was in this movie because I just assumed it was going to be Lance Henriksen. I guess his voice makes him good to play a bad guy. Yeah, that dude has like one of the most gravelly voices I own a bunch of Van Damme movies, and I think the only one I watch a lot is Hard Target. Uh, Lance Henriksen is the villain in that one, and he looks like Dexter, Dexter's dad for some reason. James, old James Remar. Uh, What's yeah, I think other... that was on the heels because we talked about that Mentos commercial. Like they they cut like yeah. uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is a horror movie. Yeah, I need to share that one still with you. But um... what's the other um, Eureka movie he's talking about? No, I, I think he said this is the only one movie I could think of that reminded me of Eureka. Oh, I'm dumb. I thought he said the other one. No. Yeah. I, I honestly can't either. I always thought for some reason it took place in Astoria because I think of like Goonies, you know, and I think there's another film filmed there too. I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Carl. And uh, glad you enjoyed that one. I got actually got a, some some fair a uh, bit of feedback about Jennifer eight, some Jennifer eight fans out there. So I think it's, it's uh, widely recognized that uh, John Malkovich's out of left field uh, interrogation part really shores that movie up for a lot of people. Um, I assume you got, a I lot guess of, he was sick lot. at the, at the end of that too. Like, like when, Oh, he you sounded can tell, like terrible. Yeah. Like and so I, nasal for like the, yeah, it, they only had him, I think, for like two weeks. And so they shot in sequence. And you can hear, he, I think there's three interrogations, like just like separate. And the, yeah, the third one, he's like all stuffed up and he sounds like, yeah, fucking nasally. And, but he's like, fuck it, we, let's run it, you know? And like that scene, I think it called for him like smoking cigarettes too. I was like, oh, it's the worst. Yeah. Did, did uh, other people share my 
theory that she actually was not blind? No. <laughs> Damn it. You're alone. You're alone in your principles on that one. Fuck. There he goes. Off to write that new number one hit, Alone in My Principles. <laughs> See, <the> O'Neaters. <laughs> Yeah, you go. You know, you and Oneeders are great. You guys always welcome out here to Villa Pianos. Hey, that's Onetters. <laughs> Good times. Uh, cool. So, yeah, that'll put a fork in it for now for Alex Murdoch. We'll check in in, I don't know, two or three weeks, maybe, see how the case is going and, and kind of circle back. But yeah, definitely let us know what you guys think. If, uh, you think he's guilty if you have any theories or whatever um next week can we uh, offer we be- can we offer three suggestions either guilty sure. not guilty or innocent because those are very different things okay wait not how is not guilty different than innocent well innocent means he didn't do it not guilty means the state didn't prove their case okay i got you uh yeah and do you have What's a up? uh since this is going to come out after the super bowl this is pre-recorded. You have a prediction? I'm here. Um, who are the chefs? Mm, I'm going to go with Philly. I feel like they're riding a pretty pretty good high right now, and they got the city on their back. And Yeah. I agree. I think it's going to be a barn burner is what I'll say. I think it, it's going to make for a shootout. So I, I'm, I don't know. I, I keep seeing dancing in my head 38, 35 Eagles. So. Yeah. I've got I've got Philly too. I think Mahomes is like pretending his injury isn't bad as it is. And I think early in the game he's gonna be hobbling around. And then I think he'll come back and, and he'll turn it on. Overcome it. But I, I just think Philly's better. Yeah. I, I think they're more well rounded and, and I think they yeah, they just got a full head of steam coming into it. And I think they're gonna treat it like a business trip and just fucking trounce. But I think it is cool. It's a, I don't know if it's the first ever, maybe second, uh, two brothers playing against one another. The center, uh, Jason Kelsey for yeah. the Eagles, is playing his brohan, Travis Kelsey, plays tight end for the Chiefs. They actually started their own podcast. I think it's called Newer Heights, and it's them two talking about like the inner workings of the league and like football and being brothers close in age that can like whoop each other's ass like – they seem like a, a a fun couple of dudes. Yeah, I saw a cute picture where they exchanged jerseys, and one of them was like kissing the other one on the face. <laughs> when you said yeah. the first, I, I've got to say, when you said the first Super Bowl with two brothers, I thought you meant two African American quarterbacks. It's like Jesus, Jim. No, come on now. But I think that no. is true. I think it is two gentlemen of color for the first time, right? Is it? I think so. Could be. I, I'm not the big sports guy that I, I once was, so I'm pretty out of out of the loop. But yeah, who do you think is so, more handsome, uh, Patrick Mahomes or Jalen Hurts? Yeah, that's a tough call. Probably you, go with Jalen. Yeah, because you can take voice gentleman. into con- consideration as well. Mahomes the has the most Kermit annoying D. fucking Kermit. voice I've ever heard. Yeah, you see, I don't know if you saw the thing that some dude. There's a clip of him like talking shit and him saying like, "I'm here, like I'm here." And then somebody went in, yeah, someone in in with Kermit, and it fucking went viral, and he's like, I'm here! I'm (laughs) here! (laughs) Dude, that is a good Kermit. (laughs) Dude, Travis Kelsey did a good one, too, and he's he's ripping on him, too, on that podcast. He's all, I'm here! (laughs) 
But yeah, I guess he's been fucked with like his whole life. So he I, talks about it. I can see he's why. Like, yeah, he's like, I, it's just the guys, you know, I've I've grown up with it my whole life. But <laughs> dude, his what what is his dad was like tuned up after the Bengals game and he had a cigar because, you know, Joe Burrow's like the big like fucking I win and I sit in my locker with shades on and puff cigars. They went up to like Pat. They're talking to Pat Mahomes and then his dad, Pat Mahomes comes over and he's got a cigar and they're like, they're like, Pat, Papa, uh, what, what, what are you smoking on? And he's like, he's like, that's that Joe Burrow smoking on that Joe Burrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember when his dad played for the twins. Pretty wild, man. If Dick were here. He this actually he played for the Mets and then <laughs> fucking yeah. Yeah, his mom's a looker too. Wasn't she like a model or like a playmate or cheerleader? Pretty good looking woman. Uh okay, yeah, that's gonna put a fork in us. Um <laughs> next week uh we are planning on watching Matchstick Men from 2003, starring Sam Rockwell, uh Nick crazy Nick Cage and who's the other one? There's a girl who's like pretty famous now and it it's like a younger role for her. What the fuck's her name? God damn it, it's gonna piss me off. Matchstick man. Who is that? Allison Lohman. And what is she in? What is she known for? I do not oh, know. Oh yeah, she was the lead in Drag Me to Hell. She was also in Big Fish. She's probably really pretty young in that one too. Who is she in Big Fish? Um the daughter, maybe? Or the wife? No, she's way too young to be the wife. Sandra Bloom? I don't know. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's good. There's a new movie coming out with Joaquin Phoenix that had that reminded me. Like, that had shades of uh, Big Fish. It's some, like, three-hour movie by Ari Aster called... Uh, I can't remember what it is. Bo Doesn't Know or something like that. But, uh, yeah, so next week we'll be watching Magitech Med and we'll be having uh, Heidelberg from A Cut Above Horror Review joining us once again to talk about that one. That should be fun. You've never seen, you've never seen Magitech Men, right? No. Nope. Cool. Yeah, I like Nick, uh, Sam Rockwell and, and Nick Cage. I think they go to well go well uh, together pretty good. And uh, there's, some, there's some awesome classic unhinged cage moments um and it's directly by directed by ridley scott one of my favorite directors so um yeah i think that'll be a good that'll be a fun time regardless but uh yeah thanks thanks again for joining us uh let us know what you thought of the alex murdoch case and in case i don't see you <laughs> top us off there <laughs>